Hello, I'm Mark Price, and welcome to my podcast, Meet the Business Author. Having been the boss of Waitrose for many years and working within the John Lewis Partnership, I became interested in the way that businesses and individuals work, particularly how being happy at work can not only transform an individual's life, but how it can transform an organisation. I'm building a platform at Engaging.Works with the world's biggest business library, where anyone can come and search for information and guidance on their working life. In this series, I'll be speaking with a number of prominent business authors whose books are available to buy on the business library. I'll be speaking to them about their book, what lessons we can take from them, and what they think about the future of working life and business. I'm delighted to be here today with Oliver Shah, the very brilliant uh, editor of the Sunday Times Business, who very recently published a book uh, called Damaged Goods, which is all about the retail entrepreneur Sir Philip Green, and it tells the story in quite an extraordinary way. Uh, but uh, Ollie, you started out as a journalist before you became uh, an author of uh, best-selling books. So tell me a little about how that happened. Yeah, I started out in um, a small trade magazine after I graduated in 2005 and um, worked my way up to City AM, the free paper, and covered all sorts there. And I joined the Sunday Times in 2010 doing property. And property is a great way to learn about business in the city because it touches so many different things, especially in retail. So many of the problems now and successes in the past were rooted in property and real estate and having the right shops in the right locations. And um, property forms key parts of so many takeovers, so many deals, it's involved in so many scams, asset strips. Um, so learning about business that way was quite useful. And also property is a very people-based industry. So you learn about colour and about personality and about swaggering entrepreneurs and debt and boom and bust and all the stuff that makes business fun and colourful uh, for the reader on Sunday. So I started doing that. I took on retail in about 2013. With hindsight, it was a great time to take over covering retail because it was just beginning to reach that tipping point then. You were seeing the first cracks appearing in the industry. Uh, the internet obviously started coming through mid-noughties, I guess, but it didn't really start having that seismic effect until the sort of early teens. And um, I think I took over just after Tesco's first profit warning, which was one of those landmark moments in the supermarket world with Aldi and Little nibbling away market share and causing all sorts of trouble for the incumbent uh, big four grocers. And um, it was a real sort of roller coaster few years and um, sort of wrote about all the supermarkets, Strife, Debenhams, M&S, Mark Bolland, Dalton Phillips, Morrison's, all the big stories of the time, Phil Clark, Tesco. And um, in the course of that met Sir Philip Green, who was um, obviously king of the high streets at that point in time and uh, king of all he surveyed from Arcadia Group, owner of Topshop. And um, I, I explore in the book and describe how he was such a key contact for newspapers at that point in time. He was the person who had his finger in so many different pies retail-wise and knew all the bankers, knew all the protagonists, knew what was happening where and when. And um, he was an essential person who was viewed as being essential to have on your side. And um, it was a slight rite of passage when you became the Sunday Times retail correspondent. Traditionally, the first call you made to anyone to introduce yourself and say what you were doing was uh, to Philip Green yeah, before you ran anyone else um, in the sector. And so I dialed his number, feeling slightly nervous, and um, he answered and said, well, you better come and see me, haven't you? 
and uh, so I made the pilgrimage across. Is that the to, voice? Uh, something like that. Pro probably a bit, a bit grittier in reality. Um, and I made the pilgrimage to Bernard Street, his Arcadia HQ, just off Oxford Street, and um, I sat down with him, and he was... Um, <coughs> He can be very charming sometimes, and he can be very avuncular, and there's a twinkle in the eye. And he, um, he sat me down and said, you know, who do you want to know in retail? Who are you struggling to get hold of? And I gave him a few names of people who were proving elusive, hard to track down. And he got out his Nokia brick phone and said, watch this. And he started dialing all these numbers of people, sort of um, ringing up chairman this and CEO that and saying, I've got new Sunday Times retail man here. You're going you're gonna to see him because I say so. And he enjoyed sort of seeing the reaction this uh, caused on my face, kind of wide eyes and uh, slightly in awe. And at the end he said, we, we shook hands and he said, young Oliver, don't forget your Uncle Philip. And that was a taste of the, the quid pro quo that accompanied any sort of Philip Green interaction. And um, we had a couple of years of what looking back was relative honeymoon where we would chat about things and he would occasionally sort of give you tips and ideas and guidance on the industry. And then... Um, the BHS thing happened and that all, that all changed. So you wrote a lot in the newspaper about him, but what was it that decided you to write a book about Philip Green, Rise and Fall? He always struck me as a very um, intriguing character because you have on the surface the, the whip-smart market trader and the quips and the jokes and the humour and the one-liners, which can be very, very funny and very amusing. And... Um, you have a certain level of warmth as per the Uncle Philip conversation. You have someone who can turn on the charm when needed. And then you have the utterly foul sort of uh, temper and um, the mafia-like sort of fear he sent through the industry and the way he controlled people. And um, the, the, whole, the whole rise had been done in quite a self-consciously dramatic way, looking back on it. The way he celebrated certain milestones with big parties and hung out with celebrities and um, did huge interviews and embraced the press. It was sort of built for a big, grand narrative. And um, as BHS unraveled and it got more and more a hot story, um, and, and the characters involved in that came through, I just thought all the contrasts of Philip Green and Dominic Chappelle and the, the sort of big and the little uh, made for such a good ending or at least final segment of the story. And the story hasn't quite played out yet, has it? It still hasn't quite ended, but... Um, but what, what made you think, oh, I'm going to write a book now? Did you go to publishers? Did a publisher come to you? How, how did the book idea start? It was probably towards the end of the BHS saga. So the BHS saga started in 2015 when he sold the department store chain for a pound to a guy called Dominic Chappelle, who later turned out to be a, a charlatan who took out a lot of money before it went bust with a big hole in the pension fund. And um, we, we started investigating them with the Sunday Times and... Um, broke loads of stories about Dominic Chappelle's scurrilous business history and associations and the people who broke the deal and all the scuzzy connections and um, really exposed what a sham it was. And it took a, a long time to unravel. It was about a year before the thing went bust. Then there was the parliamentary inquiry in summer 2016. And um, I think it was by that summer and the parliamentary inquiry when you could see all the drama laid out for you. You know, the great thing about... Uh, select committees is they bring all the facts into the, into the public eye and they go through things in quite a narrative, chronological, orderly way. And you can see the whole story laid out and you just think it's something that you can make up. I mean, there's a quote from Frank Phil, which you mentioned as we were getting ready, which is, um, he mentioned towards the end of the select committee hearing, 
you know, someone wrote all this down in a, in a manuscript and um, submitted for publication, you get it thrown back at you, no one will believe it. And I thought, well, I might have a go and um, see if they do. So did you start writing and then find a publisher? Or publisher said, Oliver, you know a lot about this guy, write the story. Can you remember how you started? Yeah, the process was, I, um, I was convinced there was a book in it and I was convinced if you brought together Green's early story and the rise and where he came from, which take, takes you back to loads of retail history and loads of UK history, back to the 50s and the, the start of that great post-war consumer boom into the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, noughties. It gives you a great panoramic view of UK business and culture. And I thought if you couple that with the BHS story and the unravelling, you had a really good dramatic arc and you had a great, a great sort of um, series of characters to hang it off and a load of different anecdotes and things so I was convinced it would work as a book and um, I started off writing a few trial chapters and it takes a long time I'm sure you, you you know as well as I do it takes a long time to get these things into a into the right order in your head and what what now seems so obvious looking back was quite a painful process of drafting and redrafting done on Sundays in my spare room when you're often quite tired at the end of a hard week and um, I spent a long time thrashing around in the dark I would say sort of working out chapters changing them um, I showed it to a few agents, some of who were mildly interested, and um, it sort of went nowhere for a while. I was getting more and more frustrated, and I was almost giving up, actually. And then um, a guy called James Ashton, who I used to work with, formerly Evening Standard, um, he recommended an agent called Toby Mundy, who specialises in non-fiction. And um, we had a coffee, got on very well, and Toby just kind of got it straight away. He understood the idea, and he helped me work out... Um, we wrote the whole book in miniature in about, from memory, 10,000 words, so about a tenth of the size of the full book. And we just wrote the entire narrative out as if it was the real book and compressed everything down just to see if it would work as a construct, and it did. And we honed that for a while and sort of polished that up. And um, Toby then took that to a few publishing houses. Luckily, several were keen. There was a little bidding war. Uh, went with Penguin in the end. And um, again more than the money went with Penguin because um, the editor there called Lydia Yardi uh, very young very ambitious um, very talented she saw the whole thing from the get go and she understood it and um, and she was great to work with she sort of helped me refine it into a book and um, it took a while even after we had that miniature version to thrash out the bigger narrative and the structure and how chapters would lock together what ground you cover in certain chapters and amazingly 100,000 words sounds like quite a lot especially when you're a newspaper journalist, you're used to writing 1,200 words. Um, and actually crushing everything into 100,000 words in the end became the challenge. And it's kind of what you leave out that is quite significant. It's where you cut and where you tighten things up and make the narrative flow. And there are bits that you sort of, um, you can fall in love with bits of colour or anecdotal or quotes or bits of narrative. And um, you have to chop, chop them out sometimes because they're extraneous or they take you away from the main flow of the story. And um, it's kind of being brutal, isn't it? It's, um, it's being disciplined with yourself and trimming the whole thing down so that it works for the reader and that it's not written for you, it's written for the reader. To... And did the process feel different than being a journalist and putting your copy before an editor? Yeah, it's much more, um, it's much more lonely, I would say, because you're in your spare room in my case. I had three months to do it. Sunday Times were very kind. They gave me a sabbatical where I didn't have to think about any newspaper work for three months, which was a real uh, privilege. And without that, I couldn't, I couldn't have done it. Uh, because you need to work quite intensively. So three months, 100,000 words, a week of prep to begin with. So it's kind of 1,500, 2,000 words a day. Um, 
and it doesn't sound like much to start with. The first week was okay, actually. I would say um, the first week you're sort of on adrenaline and you're running and running and things are pouring out. And um, after that, the enormity of what you have in front of you sort of starts to become more real. And um, you're not, not really speaking to any journalistic colleagues for a week. And uh, you do miss the sort of um, water cooler chat in the office and sort of being in the mix. When you're a, when you're a journalist working week to week, you're very used to being in the flow of stuff. And you're, you love information, you love uh, the gossip and um, being on the phone with people. And you do miss being unplugged from that. And you're sort of immersed in your own little world. And um, there are points when you sort of... Um, when you're in the office and you're working on stuff for the weekly paper, you can sound it off your editor, you can sound it off colleagues, off contacts, and you sort of you work out what works, what doesn't very quickly, and you sort of have to hone down the features pretty rapidly because you've got deadlines coming up. And when you're with a book, you can sort of um, do 2,000 words a day, and you sort of worry that you could go a whole week heading in slightly the wrong direction. And if you head sort of a few degrees wrong every day, cumulatively at pace for a week, you end up sort of quite a few degrees off by the end of the week. And so it's sort of, um, it's being able to step back and get perspective and make sure you're heading, heading down the right track and um, speaking to my editor at Penguin regularly and things. Um, it's a different process and um, it takes more structure, I would say. Mm. It's, um, it's a more disciplined task and a more structured task. And it's a, it's a brilliant read, Oliver. And... Um... I think people who really don't know or maybe don't even think they care about retailing or about the fashion world will just be captivated by your description of events and the characters. So do you just want to set out the story, the bones of the story, and why people should buy the book? Yeah, thank you. I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed it as well. Um, so the book begins in 2016, and... Uh, the opening chapter, I wanted to frame the collapse of BHS because, for me, that was the pivotal moment the book hinges around. And so it opens with the scene of me on the phone to Philip um, the weekend before it collapses, where I know there's going to go bust from contacts, and he's angrily denying it. And um, we have a sort of standoff where I say, look, I know it's true, and he says, I'm going to throw you through the effing window. And um, there's a kind of drama around the threats and the swearing, and it was where he really blew his lid for the first time, and... Um, and we had a real showdown. And um, it then cuts back to the beginning um, because BHS is the moment where his career starts to implode. And it's where the, the fairy tale turns into a nightmare. Um, but we cut back to the beginning, to the 50s. And um, I'm a bit of a geek and I enjoy sort of business history and um, where things come from. And um, it traces back, you know, the year of his birth, um, post-war, beginning of a big consumer boom. Um, people were starting to feel affluent for the first time in probably sort of 20 years. Um, credit comes through, people can buy white goods and things. Um, and it traces the birth of sort of retail and how M&S and Tesco and these chains become big national chains. And um, also the birth of corporate raiding, because Green's business hero is a guy called uh, Sir Charles Claw, who um, came out of the Jewish East End around the turn of the century and um, was a real sort of rags-to-riches guy. And um, he was the first bloke who spotted the disconnect between the, the valuations the stock market put on retail companies and the valuation you could get if you bought them, broke them up, sold off property, and sort of monetized the unrealized value of property. And it's all about spotting the undervalued property. And um, as a sort of former property journalist, I love that. It's all very sort of 
uh, geeky stuff, but it's um, it's a it's a great story, Charles Claw, and it's um, in a way a miniature Philip Green story, and it's a morality story. It's a guy who came from nowhere, was super focused and determined, but um, just too single-minded on making money for himself. In the end, becomes a tax exile, wandering around the world, living in Monte Carlo, uh, dies lonely and sort of semi-heartbroken, um, and it's a it's a really sort of um, striking echo from the past. And we go through that, we go through how Green goes to, um, he's from a fairly privileged background relative to someone like Charles Claw. you know, his mum has a load of uh, coin laundries and garages and the dad has property. And uh, he goes to a school that was known as the Jewish Eton Carmel College and um, he's a bit of an outcast there, he's not really an academic type, he's not cerebral, he's not particularly good, good at sports and he leaves with a bee in his bonnet age 15 or 16, goes into rag trade, and starts off doing sort of um, job buying, which is where the wheeler dealers at the time would buy job lots of surplus stock and you know flog them to market stalls or small retail chains or whatever. Um, builds his way up through a series of stores and um, in the 80s arrives at a company called Amber Day. A uh, very controversial period. Becomes a stock market darling, sort of um, spiving up the share price and talking to all the journalists and becoming quite well known. And is then booted out in the early 90s because the share price tanks and there's huge acrimony. It gives him a bee in his bonnet about the city for the rest of his life, you know, all these posh wankers in their pinstripe suits. And um, it sort of um, sets the mould for the, the later career because he's, um, he's very bitter about the city and the way they've treated him and he thinks he knows better than all the investment bankers and the brokers and the sort of stiff corporate types. And then um, he spends a few years in the wilderness. And then the big breakthrough de deal is Sears, where in the late 90s, he and Richard Caring, who goes on to become very important and now obviously owns Annabelle's and Scott's and all these kind of places, he, Richard Caring, and the Barclay brothers, who own the Telegraph papers now, uh, team up and um, take over the Sears retail empire, which by a sort of quirk of history is the old Charles Claw empire, which Charles Claw has died. It's then run by his former right-hand man, Leonard Sainer, who's not really a visionary entrepreneur, he's a managerial type, um, former lawyer. And Sears has fallen on hard times. It owns brands like Miss Selfridge and Richard Shops and uh, the Adams Children's Wear brand. Um, but it's, it's sort of lost its way. And Green can see what the market can't see. And he can see the properties are worth loads. And the, the market's not really valuing the properties because it's so out of love with the management team and the underperformers of the fashion brands. And so he and the Barclays um, team up, take it private, um, and Green smashes the whole thing to bits within months. And he sells off all the various fashion brands, or he and Richard Caring do. And um, he and the Barclays brothers are left with 300 million of profit, which is a spectacular profit from a sort of 800 million deal or whatever it was. And um, the city suddenly wakes up and thinks, wow, this guy can make money. This guy has the vision and the ability to turn, you know, an undervalued company into cash. And that then sort of puts him on a roll. Um, the next year, he tries to bid for M&S for the first time, hostile. That falls apart. Again, huge acrimony. His wife's accused of insider trading. She's cleared, but the sort of stink scuppers the deal. Uh, he then buys BHS. He then buys Arcadia. And he's sort of king of the castle for years. Takes out huge dividends from BHS and Arcadia. Sort of multi-billions. His wife's moved to Monaco. Tina, she banks all the proceeds tax-free. And he's lauded by the press. It's one of the most amazing sort of comeback stories ever because in the early 90s he was written off. Everyone thought he was a busted flush after Amber Day. And uh, he's back and he's swaggering and he's showing everyone that actually he can do the deals. He has the magic sauce. And um, 
for a while. He's sort of he's Midas touch. Everything he touches turns to gold. He bids to M&S again. Um, almost gets it. Comes far closer than he'll ever realise. I mean, he's literally sort of pennies away from buying it. Um, he's offering sort of four pounds a share. If he bumped even slightly more, probably Stuart Rose and the board would have folded. Um, but they just about fought him off. And um, for many years, it's kind of the golden years. It's him and Kate Moss and uh, the champagne and the parties in Cyprus and uh, Bahamas and Mexico and wherever, and um, all the Maldives. And it's you know it's, it's showbiz. It's journalists applauding on the sidelines. Everything goes right, um, and that sort of lasts until until the early teens, until around 2013-14, when BHS, which by that point is the unfashionable, so ugly, ugly cousin of the whole empire, left in one corner. It's been bleeding a lot of money, bigger and bigger pension deficit, and uh, Green has to get rid of it. And at that point, rather than putting it through administration and admitting that he's failed, he does a, a dodgy deal with uh, Dominic Chappelle, sells it for a pound, and the story sort of uh, starts going wrong. And so that, that's, that's the narrative... And that's why I thought it has an almost cinematic quality. And um, there are films coming out soon about them, aren't there? There's Greed with Steve Coogan and um, Isla Fisher and a few others coming out in a few weeks. And so, so what most surprised you about Greed? I think um, so many things. One of the most interesting things for me was looking back through the old newspaper cuts. And you, um, you really get a sense for the time when you're looking through the archives. When you're looking at cuttings from the... 70s, 80s, 90s, noughties. And you see the way people are written about. It's so interesting and all the context around it that you've forgotten now. And um, you see the way he goes from being a complete pariah in the 90s. He's a joke figure. When he's chucked out of Amber Day, the journalists are laughing at him, the city's laughing at him. He's seen as a spiv, a nobody. And he's kind of in his early 40s. He's not young, uh, not young, young. And he's, um, he's seen as finished. And actually, um, some of the self-belief he has is quite amazing. There, there are plenty of things to admire about Philip Green. And I hope it comes through in the book that it's not a, entirely a, you know, a damning indictment of everything he's ever done. He's, um, there's a lot to be interested in about human nature and character. And um, the sheer self-belief he has in those years in the wilderness is quite something. And um, the wit and the swagger... And the way he plays, he's got no, no cards in his hand. When he's out of Amber Day, he's holding sort of, you know, th three twos or whatever it is. And um, he sort of uses those cards to build his way back up through deals with Tom Hunter, back to Sears, bang, into the big time. And um, I think some of the self-belief was quite striking. And then it also sort of um, was striking for so long how, how, how Goldilocks it was, you know, how sort of perfectly not too hot, not too cold. It was just perfect for a long time, and the, the press all fell into line. Um, people were very, very pliant, and so was the city. I mean, Merrill Lynch, uh, Finsbury, the PR firm, you know, Goldman Sachs, these are the cream of the city who worked for him really happily, were happy to be associated with him. And um, it's just the sort of, it's the highs and lows of fortune, isn't it? And the, the fickleness of the people who follow the protagonists around. Would you say you were fond of your subject? I would say not, not unfond in a funny way. Um, strangely when you spend that amount of time studying someone you get to know them quite well and they know that you've got to know them quite well and I think um, he's the kind of person who can't leave things alone he has, to, he has to ring you constantly 
And while I was writing the book, he was ringing, ringing constantly, and he sort of, he knew roughly who I was talking to because it would get back to him in some way. You know, friends of friends would tell him who was receiving phone calls and letters and emails and sort of being knocked on the door of and things. And um, he was sort of, he gave a running commentary, and he was, he was quite amused sometimes. Um, he would sort of ring up out of the blue with no introduction and say, you really are an effing idiot, aren't you? And I'd say, oh, nice to hear from you, Philip. And uh, we sort of have a bit, a bit of back and forth about why are you effing talking to so-and-so? He knows, he knows the effing square root of nothing. And um, it's sort of, uh, yeah, it, it's a funny one. You, you form a funny relationship, I think. If, if you end up writing a biography and completely hating someone, I think you probably fail because you haven't seen both sides of them. Um, there's always more than one side. And Philip, is, Philip can be a monster, but he's not just a monster. Uh, he can be a surprisingly vulnerable, warm human being. And... Um, he can make you laugh. Like when I, when I got the um, business editor's job, after the whole BHS thing, he, he sent me a text saying, I hope you're going to say thank you for getting the job. And um, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't not laugh. Um, equally, the book, the book sort of starts with the whole throw you through the window thing. And uh, in the course of the book, he was ringing and sort of hassling, why are you writing this book? I'll sort of give a big check to charity and you can, you can shelve it and do something sensible with your life and all this kind of stuff. And um, I at one point reminded him of the whole throw you through the window conversation. And he said, Oliver, you're a guy who likes to live on the edge. There's a small difference between edge and ledge. And that's all you've got to remember. And uh, I, can, I can hold that against him. It's, um, he's a funny guy. And has he contacted you since the book's been published? Uh, sporadically. Sporadically. We've had so many fights now that we've almost gone beyond that. And um, we have you know, the occasional what he would call a rare, sensible conversation. Um, but when we, when we talk now, I'm, I'm always struck by, he can still be quite insightful, surprisingly, about other people. He lacks insight on himself to a pretty staggering level. But um, he can be very sharp about other people, strangely. I think he's the kind of person who, if he saw himself in the third person, he would instantly spot everything that's wrong. But um, somehow he's got a blind spot for himself. But when, whenever we talk, if we talk about a different company or a different person, he can be quite insightful. And, um, and so why, why do you think... Um somebody should buy your book? What are they going to learn about the world of business? How is it going to make them richer? Um, I would really hope people who, who aren't purely into business would buy it. That's my ultimate aim. Um, I think if someone who's not that interested in business can buy it and think, wow, actually business is about ego and ambition and uh, drive and you know, toughness and deal-making and rises and falls and um, drama... That would really please me. And I, I hope there's some of that in there. I hope there's um, the human colour and the, um, the human sort of uh, angles and flaws that make business interesting. That's what I try to capture. I'm, I'm not so much... Um, I mean, the numbers are important, and you need the numbers to put it in context. You need, you need the billions that he made. You need the sort of numbers of stores he had, the size of the stake he had in the high street. You need the size of the pension deficit and the thousands of people that it affected. You need those numbers in there. But I hope... Um, I hope it's a lot more than numbers, and it's um, it's about human story. It's about the uh, you know the, the talent and the flaws that took him to where he was. And in a funny way, I think with with Green, it's sort of the the qualities that got him to where he got to, are the same ones that triggered his downfall. Because it was the single mindedness and the vision and the ability to block out the doubters who said you can't do it that got him to Sears and BHS and almost got him M and S and did get him Arcadia and Topshop. You know, no one would have thought he could get to where he got to. People who scoffed at him in the early 90s never would have thought that by the mid-noughties he'd be knighted, have Tony Blair on speed dial, 
be seen as the number one self-made entrepreneur in the UK, the owner of Topshop, the global success story that he was for a while. And um, it's that same single-mindedness that meant he ignored all the advice when things started going wrong. And when BHS began to unravel under all the pressure from online and business rates and the decline of high street footfall and all, all those things, he wouldn't accept it for ages. He, he absorbed the bleeding for a long time. He actually funded the losses for a lot longer than most corporates would have done um, out of ego and a refusal to accept that he'd made a mistake. And um, when it got too much to keep funding, he did a deal with Dominic Chappelle rather than put it into admin and own the problem. Um, when many advisors would have said, you know, just fess up, pay 100 million for the pension fund, put it through an admin, do it cleanly. He thought there was a cleverer way involving a deal. And he was so single-minded that he thought he could manage everything. He thought he could keep the press away from the deal, keep the regulator away from it, sort of um, manage all the different constituencies, keep it trading for a few years to give himself distance. And um, it's the same qualities that sort of made him successful that in the end brought about the, the downfall. And um, so I would hope people will get a sense of the, the human drama, the Shakespearean rise and fall. A last question, which I haven't prompted you on at all. If you were to recommend one business book, what would it be? Uh, for me, the, the standout book by a country mile of the last few years uh, is um, Bad Blood by John Carreyrou, the Wall Street Journal guy who unpicked the Theranos scandal, which was the blood testing startup in the US, created by a very uh, high-profile woman, Elizabeth Holmes, who had all the Steve Jobs black turtleneck and all the visionary talk and all the great and the good on her board. And um, it's a brilliant, brilliant piece of investigative journalism. Great. Ollie, that's been fantastic. Many congratulations on Damaged Goods, uh, your bestseller. Um, and I wish you every success. Have you got another book in the pipeline? Thank you, Mark. Um, no, my current um, focus is running the business section. And uh, it turns out to be rather a full-time job. So for the meantime, I'll be, uh, I'll be doing that every week. I'm sure when you next put your mind to it, you'll produce another bestseller. Ollie, thank you very much. Thank you, Mark. Thank you for listening. For more in this series, please go to engaging.works where you can buy the book and browse over 80,000 other business titles. See you again next time.